The epistle reading this morning is from Hebrews, beginning in chapter 6 and the 13th verse, and including the first three verses of the 7th chapter. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. It is first, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. This is the word of the Lord. There was a time in my life when I was uh, <clears throat> going through some trouble in my career, and I went to see Rose Jonas, a career counselor. You may have seen her on TV. She calls herself the job doctor. And so Rose said to me, so Dave, what do you really want in life? You know, what do you want in your career? What are your goals? I said, well, I, I want to make a difference in my students. I want them to be able to study engineering and go out to be able to make big changes and improve the human condition. She said, no, 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 no. What do you really want in life? I thought a while and then I said, 
I want to be surrounded by people who cherish and adore me. (laughs) She said, now we're getting somewhere. She said, you came to this much faster than most of my clients do. This is uh, the desire of my heart. The writer of Hebrews is very clear about what he or she, we don't know who wrote it, thinks that we should desire in life. Last week's key focal passage, uh, Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, let me read that again to launch us in today. It says, and we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. This should be the desire of the Christian life, right? To follow the lead of those who've gone before us in living the Christian life. The Apostle Paul brings out this same idea in 1 Corinthians 11.1. It says, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. We imitate them because they followed Christ. We're imitators of Christ, but they help show us the way, show how it should be done. And the writer of Hebrews says, you shouldn't be sluggish in this. In other words, you should be active, proactive, in living a life that brings honor to God. And in order to do this, Hebrews is going to encourage us on how we can do that. It encourages us to have a full assurance of the hope that is within us so that by faith and patience we may live as God promised we can live. That's the purpose of Hebrews. We're in our study on Hebrews, and we're going to study that today. So let's dig deep into today's text. Um, The first two verses, Hebrews 6, 13, and 14, but I'm going to back up to 11 and 12 again so I can kind of slide into them. All right, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, God swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. So Hebrews is showing us how to live by using Abraham as an example. One of those saints who went before us that we can imitate and emulate. Abraham was able to live a life pleasing to God because God had made him a promise. That promise was the surety for Abraham. And Abraham believed that promise. So let's examine that Old Testament passage Hebrews is talking about. It's the incident that occurred right after Abraham had offered Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. He took his son. He took a knife. He was about to kill his own son because he felt that's what God wanted when an angel stopped him and provided his own sacrifice. It's right after that that comes the passage Hebrews is referring to. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all of the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. You see, Abraham considered his son Isaac to be a gift from God, not his own possession for himself, a gift from God. And therefore, he was willing to give that gift back to God. And it's the same for us today. When we consider everything that we have really belongs to God, it's not ours, then we need not despair when things seem to be taken from us. We can see they're God's. This is God's sovereignty. This is the decision he's made. Okay? And then we too can say God owns it all. We'll let him do as he wills. And the result for us is blessings. Just as for Abraham, the result was blessings. And in Genesis 22 that I just read, these blessings come in the form of a promise of a blessing. Not a blessing that's here yet, but a promise of one. Now, God had already made the same promise to Abraham that he would have many, many descendants back in Genesis 15. This is the second time the Bible says the angel came to Abraham with this same promise. It's that first promise that helped give Abraham the faith and the courage to go through thinking he had to sacrifice his own son. How strong was Abraham's faith in that promise? Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, Abraham did receive him back from the dead. You see, when Abraham was willing to give back to God, there's a principle here. God gave back to Abraham more than Abraham had been willing to offer in the first place. Because in Genesis 22, when God again makes this same promise that he would have many offsprings, he expands on it. And he swears by his own name this time. I'm swearing by my own name. This promise is still true. And it's bigger than you thought it was. Okay? He expands it to be that one of Abraham's descendants would conquer our ancient enemy, Satan. And by this act, all nations would be blessed. Now, Abraham had to wait about 25 years for that first promise of Isaac to come. And he had to wait about 2,000 years for the Messiah to finally come. And this is the context of our next verse in our passage, Hebrews 6.15. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And he could wait patiently because he believed God's promise. And Hebrews now tells us we too can wait patiently because of what God has promised us. Hebrews 6, 16 through 17. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Oh my goodness. (laughs) He did this so he could show to Abraham and to us 
the unchangeable nature of his character. And by that assurance, we could get through living a godly life. We could get through injustice in the world, that we could live a life of joy. And Hebrews says, God sealed this renewed promise to Abraham with an oath. And so he could be convinced as we are. The next verse, Hebrews 6.18, is our focal passage today, the one we put at the top of the liturgy. And it explains why this is so crucial, that God swore an oath by the highest name he could possibly swear by, his own name. Hebrews 6.18. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So God gave this promise to Abraham twice, and the second time he guaranteed it with an oath, so that we, to encourage us to hold fast as we daily walk with God. Now, this hope in the Bible, this is not the same as the modern sense of the word hope, like, boy, I sure hope I win the lottery, right? That's, that's not, the biblical meaning of hope is given in Romans 8.25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The biblical definition of the verb to hope is to wait patiently for something we know is going to happen. Hope can also be a noun in scripture, that we have a hope. For example, I have a stack of bills on my desk at home. I don't have enough money in the checking account to pay those bills. But I have a hope. Washington University is going to send me a check on the 30th of this month. I just don't hope they send me a check. No, no, I know they're sending me a check. And that's my hope. So when I look at that pile of bills, I say, forget it, you bills. <laughs> I have a hope. I'm going to get paid. And this is what the hope that God gives us is like. It's something that we know is in the bank. God cannot lie. He promised it to Abraham. He's promised it to us. Okay. When God made that original promise, right, God had now sworn by his own name that the promise was still true. And so for us, it's the same way. When we find ourselves losing courage and thinking maybe we just got to give up on this whole impossible task of living a godly life that just can't be done, we can be encouraged. Because God has promised us some things. Those first two two promises, which Gail pointed out to me this week, to us, they're not just promises anymore, right? (laughs) The Messiah really has come. And God promised his Holy Spirit And God promised he's going to come again and redeem us. We have all these promises, and that's our hope. And so Hebrews encourages us with the truth of God's immutable character so that we can rely on this hope as we navigate the storms of this present world. Now, the idea that an oath is no more powerful than whatever the oath is made on is the key here, and Jesus mentions this in a couple of different gospel passages that I think are important here. Look at Matthew 5 and Matthew 23. Matthew five fourteen and 15, Jesus is talking. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, 
for it is the city of the great king. Matthew 23, 19 to 22. You blind guides, or which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So Jesus emphasizes, as Hebrews does, that no oath is higher than the oath on the name of God. That we ourselves should never make such an oath because that's too dangerous to swear on the name of God and then not come through. But God can make such an oath. And the beauty of that oath to Abraham is that it assures us that through one of Abraham's descendants, all peoples of the earth will be blessed. And that certainly must include us. (laughs) We are some of the peoples of the earth here in the 21st century. And then Hebrews launches this out to give a powerful application to our lives. That is, how is it that one of Abraham's descendants could bless all people on earth? It's that Messiah would fully remove their sins. Hebrews 6, 19 and 20. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This idea that we have a steadfast anchor put behind the curtain, is mentioned in one of our hymns, this could be offertory today, on Christ the solid rock I stand. The one verse says, In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. This is a reference to this Hebrew scripture. Now, Bruce read this this morning, and Bruce, my composition teachers always told me never to use mixed metaphors. But I think here it works, right? We have an anchor, but it's holding within the veil. Our hope in Jesus, he's the anchor of our faith. And that anchor is secured behind the curtain. This is where the glory of God resided above the Holy of Holies, between the cherubim. Because, see, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies, and only once a year. And he would go in on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, with the blood of atonement from the Kaparah, the atonement goat, to place it on the mercy seat to pay for the sins of the people. A rope was around his leg because if he hadn't confessed his sins, he'd be struck dead, and they'd have to haul him out with the rope and wait till next year when another priest could try that out. In Matthew, as well as the other Gospels, this symbolism is brought out really strongly as Jesus is on the cross. Matthew 27, verses 50 through 52. And Jesus cried out again, and with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit. What he yelled out, the Bible says, is, it is finished. Hegia. It is what the high priest yelled. Hegia sa'ir lamidbar. It is finished. The goat. The desert. I keep reading in Matthew. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. This is why the curtain was ripped in two. It's why those saints mentioned in Matthew arose from the dead. Jesus had entered into the Holy of Holies with his own blood, 
a high priest himself after the symbolism of Melchizedek. Okay. Ephesians 4 8 said, And when he ascended up on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. He emptied the tomb, figuratively speaking, for everybody for all time, as shown by those. The anchor of our life is fixed in the glory of God and resides in the mercy seat because we were bought by the blood of Christ, our high priest who redeems us. He was the high priest, he was the sacrifice. And when he ascended up on high, he took us with him on that day. Now, Hebrews next points out that not only is Jesus a priest, like Melchizedek, but he is also, as was Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem who blesses us. Hebrews 7, 1 and 2. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To him, Abraham apportioned the tenth part of everything. Now, in Jesus' comments on oaths we just read, he also connects oaths with Jerusalem, the city of the great king. He calls it that very thing, saying an oath on this city is an oath on the Lord and on the Lord's Messiah. And so with that connection, let's look back at Genesis 14, uh, starting in verse 17, at this incident we're talking about. After Abraham's return from the defeat of Cheder la Omer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High. It's Hebrew El Elyon. El Elyon, the God Most High. Possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So this Genesis passage here just has this beautiful symbolism of how Christ is our anchor today. And that insight can help us live godly lives today. The event described in Genesis 14 came just after five kings had ransacked Sodom, taken Lot, Abraham's nephew and his wife and daughters captive and had gone off with him. And Abraham took his 400 armed men that were with him all the time. He was a very rich man. And he went after them and he got them and he redeemed Lot and his wife and those those people back. And when he did, Melchizedek came to meet him. Okay, This mysterious person. He brings out bread and wine. It's like a communion, right? He blesses Abraham and he blesses El Elyon, the Most High God, whom he calls the possessor of heaven and earth. And that invokes this same phrase we've been talking about. God owns everything. (laughs) He's the possessor of heaven and earth. Okay? And then the bread and wine to Melchizedek symbolizes the same thing. God provides our sustenance. He provides our bread, our wine. He provides our, our salvation. And then Abraham's giving 10% to Melchizedek symbolizes the same thing. It all belongs to God. I'm just giving 10% back as a symbol of that. Hebrews 7, let's continue in verse 2 and 3. Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, Malkit Sadiq. Malkit king, Sadiq, right, righteous. 
He's king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, which is a little pun because Salem is also Shalom. (laughs) He's the king of peace. And he is seemingly, seemingly, I'm sticking in there, he is seemingly without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but as a type of the Son of God, he continues a priest of El Elyon forever. So Abraham gave that tenth to acknowledge that God's victory was not due to Abraham, was not due to his 400 mercenaries, it was due to God. And that all Abraham had obtained in this conquest belonged to God. The 10% was just a token to acknowledge the fact and that the other 90% belonged to God. And what Abraham did with that other 90% should honor God just as well. Because that's God's. It is all God's. This attitude helped Abram, Abraham to live this godly life. Hebrews 7, 1 to 3, we just read, mentions three more things about Melchizedek that relate to Messiah. First, his name meant king of righteousness, and Messiah, the Jesus, is called the son of righteousness, with healing in his wings. Melchizedek was king of Salem, which means king of peace, and Jesus is the prince of peace. Third, Melchizedek seemed to exist from everlasting. No one could remember who his father and mother had been, and Jesus said of himself, before Abraham was... I am. All of these relate to many prophecies about the Messiah. For example, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Most High God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. When the heavenly host came to announce the birth of Jesus, what did they say? Glory to God most high. Glory to the most high God who brings to earth and to humankind on earth peace and his righteous blessings upon them. It's a throwback to Melchizedek as the symbol of who the Messiah is. Now, many, of course, church fathers have wondered who was Melchizedek. Probably you guys are all wondering that out there, too. Um, several spiritual interpretations have been offered. Origen, back in the second century, thought he was an angel. Melchizedek was an angel of God. Epiphanius, uh, in the fourth century, thought Melchizedek was the Holy Spirit in the flesh, that the Holy Spirit took, took on flesh. Um, Ambrose, the 4th century, thought he was the pre-incarnate Christ. It's called a Christophany. where Christ actually came in bodily form ahead of time. Calmet, in the 17th century, thought he was Enoch. Remember, Enoch never died before the flood. He was taken up, and Calmet said he came back to earth, and he was that guy. Now, you know me, I always favored the Orthodox Jewish position. The Orthodox Jewish position is he was Shem, Noah's son. Now, the Bible says Shem lived to be 600 years old. Now, if you take the genealogies literally, and Orthodox Jews take the genealogies literally, you can do the math, and Shem would have still been alive on this date with Abraham. And because he was 600 years old, no one remembered his father or his mother or who he was and to do that. Okay, So he would be alive at that time. Okay, Now, each of those conjectures is interesting. Wow. Well, they all have some pluses. They all have some minuses. There's, 
There is a more literal interpretation that Melchizedek was just what Genesis says he was. He was a Canaanite king, right, who was a priest of El Elyon. From archaeology, we know El Elyon was the name of a Canaanite god. El Elyon is on all their inscriptions. But the Bible, several times in scripture, commandeers this name away from the Canaanites and applies it to Yahweh because he is, of course, the one and only true most high God. It belongs to him. So they take the name and give it to him. And uh, in the, uh, under that interpretation, then in this case here, we have a Canaanite king, Melchizedek, who was a priest of El Elyon, but through divine inspiration, he realized his El Elyon was not the most high God. Abraham's was. And then he went out to, Ab- to Abraham as a priest of God most high. In fact, this is how they knew God back then as God Almighty. Uh, Exodus 6, 2 and 3. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name Yahweh, I did not make myself known to them. So El Shaddai, God Almighty, like the Most High God, is how Abraham knew the name, the name of God. So although no one knows who Melchizedek was, we know from Hebrews 7, he was a type of the Messiah. He was a figure of the Son of God, the writers of Hebrews says. And just as Abraham was able to draw strength from Melchizedek's visit to him, we can draw strength from our Most High God, uh, Jesus. Okay, finally, one more thing here. I think it's important and intentional that Hebrews emphasizes Abraham's giving 10% back to Melchizedek. His obedience in this is an example that we can imitate. Hebrews 6.12 says, Be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. The giving back of a portion to God goes back way before Moses. This was 500 years before the law. But Abraham knew he should give 10% back to God. What did Jesus say about it? Jesus mentioned tithing in the very same passage he mentions oaths. The very next verse he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You tithe your mint leaves and your dill seeds and your cumin, but you've neglected the way to your matters of the law, justice and mercy. These ought you to have done, but not neglect the others. So Jesus taught that we should not neglect giving of our tithe. But we should also not neglect justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And Abraham did this. Because after he gave 10% to Melchizedek, he gave the other 90% to the people of Sodom. Because <laughs> they were hurting. They had Their whole stores had been wiped out. Five kings had taken everything they had. He, he understood justice and mercy. And so he did both of those things. Now, like any other commandment, this is not a legalistic rule. It's, you know... But what did Jesus say? The law said, thou shalt not kill. I say, don't be angry with your brother. The law says, don't commit adultery. I say, don't look at another person who's not your spouse in a lustful way. So if the law said we would give 10% back, you could just ask yourself, what then do you think we ought to give back to God under grace? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8, Paul writes, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. 
Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. And once again, the principle pops up. We give back to God, and we get back more than we give. Paul says, if you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. Paul says God is able to have give us all sufficiently in everything. So when we give back to God, when we give to others, we receive more back. And so in conclusion, the writer of Hebrews encourages us to abound in every good work, including tithing, reminding us our strength and hope is anchored in the very presence of God. And this assurance is steadfast and sure because our high priest and atoning sacrifice entered that curtain first. So God has promised it's true. He's sworn it's true. And so Hebrews 6.18 says, So that by two unchangeable things, and which is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope that's set before us. Hallelujah.